Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, December 31st, 2021, New Year's Eve. I don't know what that I don't know what this says about us, Jim. Well, <laughs> we are parts of couples who have just gotten <laughs> to this side of the holiday. And the fact that we are home and both exhausted and beaten down. And are staying in. And again, this is a pandemic. We're being responsible, okay? Yes, it's true. It's true. But anyway, I, I you know, I guess we, we have to acknowledge the really big news tonight, of course, is the passing of Betty White, who w- would have been 100 in less than two weeks uh, on January 17th, 2022. Do you want to talk about the drive you and Katie took yesterday? I'm just fascinated at the timing of this. Yeah, I mean, we've been watching Golden Girls every night before we've gone to bed for, I don't know, the past few months. Mm-hmm. And also looking up episodes of Empty Nest, which, of course, was part of the Damn. Golden Girls extended universe. Mm-hmm. But we were really, you know, stir crazy yesterday. We said, let's go on a drive. And we mm-hmm. went and found the original Golden Girls house, which, of course, mm-hmm. fans of this show will know was used for seasons one through three. And then from four to seven, they used the house on the Disney MGM backlot, which, did. you know, mm-hmm. we all rolled by. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was just very weird coincidence that mm-hmm. that we did that. And then today she is gone, which is just such a bummer. It is. It is. And, and I picked up recently, there's a wonderful new book, Inside Comedy, uh, The Soul, Wit, and Bite of Comedy and Comedians of the Last Five Decades, which, by the way, is written by David Steinberg, who was no slouch himself when it came to stand-up, but he had a fascinating second career as a director of sitcoms, and among the sitcoms he directed quite often was The Golden Girls. And he talked about, I talked in the book, the, the, the first Golden Girl I met on my first day on the set was Betty White. She was the epitome of genuine and genuinely funny. She was America's longest working actress uh, comedian. She won five Emmys, three American Comedy Awards, three Screen Actor Guild Awards, and a Grammy. You pointed out today, you you tweeted out the link to, the Golden Girls actually went to Walt Disney World, or was that part of a special? Yeah, it was part of a special. It was the 1986, I want to say, 15th anniversary Mm -hmm. Walt Disney World special. Okay. Hosted by Michael Eisner. I mean, it's got the two guys from Air Supply giving women roses as they're sitting around Main Street. Um, a, a number of very energetic Ray Charles performances. And unlike the the specials of today, which mm-hmm. are all either in front of the castle or in front of Small World at Disneyland, mm-hmm. this they have they are performing all over the park. I was just watching it and there was a performance right outside of Big Thunder Mountain. I mean, it's just, it's a really, really fun. It's on YouTube. It's on my, if you go look at my Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. You can also see that, did you see that Bob Peterson wrote some thoughts about her in response to my uh, tweet? No! What did yeah. you say? What did Bob? He, oh. Well, you know, I, I brought up the fact that she, mm-hmm. one of her last performances was actually on Forky Asks a Question as Bitey White, who oh, is the, that's you right. know. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so I wrote that, and mm-hmm. then Bob wrote in let me find the tweet here mm-hmm. and he said she was funny and spry and naughty mm-hmm. everything i knew she'd be and i'm lucky to have been with her in the recording booth even for a short while mm-hmm. is that sweet or what that is sweet but as part of your original tweet you pointed out that yeah in fact you use a photo of her and b arthur and you pointed out that they hated one another <laughs> You know. I think it was more B. Arthur that hated well, her. No, in fact, yeah. I, I can confirm that. Again, from a David Seinberg's book, he talks about working with B. Arthur, that she was tough. It's like, and this is directly from Betty, that she was tough, and I think B. hated me, and I, I don't know why. I loved her. I really did, and her, her talent was incomparable. But I have to share this story that, because again, they, it's, this is, book is filled with great, great, funny show business stories. But it talks about, they've just finished directing an episode of The Golden Girls. And so David swings by B's dressing room and they're sharing a drink. And at one point, here she goes, you know, she leans her arm, arm at me and says, David, why do people take such an instant dislike to me? And his response is, well, B, it just saves time. <laughs> Ah, I love that. I love it. But again, great, great book. I was going to tell you, Jim, that, you know, we haven't talked since Christmas for, mm. as 
for Christmas, I, uh, Katie and I watched this great movie called The Silent Partner. Have you ever seen this? Why is that Canadian for... movie? It's the yeah. I think it's the first I think it's the first appearance of your buddy uh, John Candy in a movie. Oh. It's a great Elliot Gould crime movie. Very hardcore. Really, really, really good. Is that? Um, that's got Christopher Plummer in it. Yes, Christopher Plummer is the psycho. There we like, go. Robert, okay. yeah. It's yeah. amazing. But I just, I thought of you immediately when I saw him pop up in the background. And then it, I think they said it was his first movie ever. But very much worth looking at into. Yeah, David also uh, pays tribute to John. As part of this book. Oh, really? Well, yeah, I think he talks about how when John first came out to L.A., John lived in David's pool house along with his wife for like a year before he, you know, finally moved out and and got his own place in L.A. But but, Uh, anyway. I love stories like that. I did. Same thing here. Same thing here. But anyway, folks. Kind of a slow news week. Basically, nobody's in the office right now, and, and uh, things will pick up next week. Did you see, this was also being tweeted out earlier today, Drew, the footage of the new projection show at Disneyland Paris based on imagery and music from Encanto? No, it's already being integrated into the parks. There you go. You know, but what's really fun about it is every so often Louisa, the strong sister, will appear at first. She's lifting just one of the towers and that by the end of the show, I think she's lifted the entire castle and then just heaves it into the air. But kind of a fun bit of video. Also, uh, The Art of Maya and the Three. I'm sure a lot of you got this book from Dark Horse Books as a Christmas present this year, which of course keys off of the Netflix series that debuted back in October. But Gallery Nucleus, where our Mr. Taylor has actually hosted a couple of events. Yes. They're doing a physical signing and a virtual event on January 8th. Uh, It's going to run from 2 to 6 p.m. Pacific time. And Mr. Gutierrez and his lovely wife, Sandra, are going to be taking part in this. And and, and it's both an in-person and a virtual panel. But typically, what, it's like a $5 fee to get in? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think people should definitely do it. Um, We didn't have enough people on our our Dave Bossert, Claude Coates chat, but it was a really interesting chat. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, these are always really, really fun. And obviously, we love Maya and the Mm -hmm. Three, and to have your book signed by these two geniuses. You know, Sandra designed all the characters Mm -hmm. and helped with the story, and, you know, so... Yes, definitely. Definitely seems like it's worth doing. And we, you know, always good to support Gallery Nucleus, which is a really fabulous place uh, over there in Alhambra. Totally agree. Totally agree. On last show, you had mentioned Hilda and the Mountain King, which, which, by the way, debuted on Netflix just yesterday, December 30th. Have you gotten around to that yet? I haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah. And I haven't I haven't watched Rumble yet either. Uh, have you? That was the thing. I was going to confess that I have not yet watched Rumble myself, and that's been available on Paramount Plus since December 15th. So maybe after we wrap up here, that that's how I'll spend my New Year's Eve watching, you know, Kaiju. Whoa. Yes. Ooh. Do I know how to party or not? <laughs> Given it's a slow news week, can I, you know, you might want to, it might be interesting to learn a little bit more about the two guys behind this podcast, because we have done a hundred and 50s things. First episode that we did together was back in April of 2018. In fact, it was in the first week of that month. And your Light the Fuse podcast got started in June of that same year, 2018. And you've racked up 183 <laughs> episodes of that so far. In fact, Good Lord. This week, just inside of a one eight-day period, folks, you posted on Christmas Day, you had the re- a recap of your great interview, multi-part interview with Brad Bird. And then yep. today, uh, as sort of a wrap-up for you, you've been doing a, a fairly lengthy tribute to Ghost Protocol, but this is kind of a, a best-of recap of that as well, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, seriously, well, well, well worth listening to, folks. On the other hand, Disney Dish side of the fence, Len and I have done 267 of these so far. I think the very first one was back in April of 2016. In fact, I think the first official one was a history of Fast Pass. Len and I first met December of 2003. I think the very first time we really worked together was on the... 2005 edition of the unofficial guide and which meant mm-hmm. we would have written that stuff in 2004 and uh, to be honest the, the disney-ish podcast really didn't get started until like 10 years later 
Len had been part of a very successful show, the the Walt Disney World Today podcast that he did with Mike Newell and Matt Tochberg and um, Mike Scopa, and they had done thousands, literally thousands of episodes over like I remember that well. Yeah, t- yeah. A, a solid decade, but they. They, it ran from 2005 to 2015, and starting in 2016, they handed it off to a whole new set of uh, hosts. And I was over working with Nathan Rose on the Magical Definitions podcast, which was the show he did after uh, Lou Mangello, uh, and he who had done the Mouse Tunes show, I guess it's called. Lou went off to start uh, WW Radio, and I think we were just talking about on a recent show, Drew, how the first time you and I really met face-to-face was the, the junket for Into the Woods, the Sondheim thing. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah, December yeah. Of, of 2014. So tell you what, folks, we got a little bit more about, uh, you know, Drew and I. And, but before we get to those questions, a, a gratuitous plug. Uh, if there had been a really sizable news portion of today's show, uh, it would have been brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. But I feel like, Drew, you have so many great stories and get to talk with so many people and learn. So, But for your background, I mean, what was the first animated film you actually saw in a theater? I think it was Oliver and Company. I'm going to say that. Okay. Is my, that's my loose guess. So that's 88? Um, yeah, I think so. I mm. didn't see... Well, you know what? Maybe I saw American Tale, but I was too young mm-hmm. to remember. I definitely remember it on home video mm-hmm. back when you had to wait you know, 18 months for these things to come out uh, on mm. home video. But I distinctly remember Oliver and Company and then, of course, Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. But I feel very lucky to have kind of grown up in uh, in that era of Disney animation when it was really coming back in such a unique way. Absolutely. I mean, my first film I saw in theaters was Sword in the Stone. I really like Sword in the Stone, though. I don't know if that was I, that was a favorite of mine growing up. You might c- call me crazy, but Sword in the Stone has a lot of good stuff in it. In fact, what's interesting is if you talk. To animators like Andreas Deja, you know, they will point to the Wizards' battle as that's what made me decide I wanted to be an animator. You know, just that that, wow. that you could do that. But beyond that, I mean, that's kind of a problematic movie. If you think about the years that it's in production, this is a distracted Walt Disney. This is a Walt Disney right. who's concentrating on his theme parks, who's chasing after would-be sponsors for the '64 World's Fair. And the animators, they talk about those times in the 30s and the 40s where you'd meet every day with Walt and you, you know, you'd go over, you know, what scene we're working on in the film. And, you know, he, he had all of your attention. And then by the 1960s, you were lucky if you got one meeting a week with him. And it was just sort of, all right, let me come in, show me all the scenes. Uh-huh. Okay, great. And he was out. The toy that was catching his attention the most was were the theme parks and the fact that he watched that movie and never figured out that Merlin was a caricature of him. Right. I was going to ask if that was an apocryphal story. No, no. In fact, your buddy Brad Bird, you've heard the stories about him and Syndrome, right? You know. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but Brad was at least smart enough to, you know, has he ever told you that story or, you know? No, no. I mean, I think, I mean, if you look at Brad Bird and you look at Syndrome, I mean, it's po- impossible to, to, uh, Distinct, distinguish who's who. I mean, it's it's amazing. No, absolutely. But but at the same time, I it just the story I, I, he, I, he told me once is just that he was in a room and you know it had becoming become more and more obvious. You know, this had been going on for like three four weeks at this point, and he's watching the most recent <laughs> set of boards, and he laughs, and then he says, "I know what you guys are doing." You know, and it's, it's this sort of silence falls in the room, but but it's okay. And it's like, oh, oh, good. But the fact that Walt evidently just did not pick up on it. 
It's it's so good. Okay, so that's your first movie in theaters. What about if you're a kid? You really your 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 first introduction to animation is at home in front of the TV. Do you, do you remember a, a, a particular series or a show? Or I mean, I I think the whole Disney afternoon thing kind uh, of happened uh, around the same time, right? And that was like huge for me. Gummy Bears and Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which did you see is going to be on Blu-ray thanks to the Disney Movie Club. They're putting that entire series out on Blu-ray, which I is pretty cool. Did not know. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, that was that was it for me. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. what was your first animated like, again, show? Again, I am old. I wasn't necessarily in the first wave of watching stuff like, you know, when Hanna Barbera did Trixie and Dixie or Yogi right. Bear or that sort of thing. But it had gone into syndication at that point. And so, you know, the local kid shows in the New England market, all of them got different shows that they could then show as part of their kiddie show in the afternoon. There was a show here in New Hampshire called Uncle Gus. Uncle Gus is kind of an infamous show. Do you ever hear the, the story about the, the guy who was saying, goodbye, kitties, goodbye, you know, and, and then, right. then, then at the tail end, well, that ought to hold the little bastards for another afternoon. And it's like, that was Uncle <laughs> Gus. The re, he really did say that. And that show went off the air the very next, you know, that day. Uh, but Uncle Gus had the Dick Tracy animated thing, which, uh, oh, oh, my God. Today, you know, just like, what was it? The 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 Go Go Gomez and I, I mean it, it's it's impossible to watch today. It is just it buries the needle in so many racial stereotypes and but it is it's Dick Tracy long before Disney did the movie. But but yeah, I I remember watching that and thinking this is really terrible, <laughs> you know. But but I'm a kid and it's a television, so I'll watch it. And and of course we're recording the show during the holiday season and in. And, of course, animation is such a big part of that. And any particular holiday special you remember first? You know, sort of like, ooh. I mean, I think it was like one of the classic uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Mm -hmm. Or there was also a – there was a non-animated one about like the year that they were going to – that – Santa was gonna skip. It was it was a live action thing in the eighties. I just have a very oh, fond. No, you know what I'm talking about. This isn't the thing with Angela Lansbury, is it? It might be. I I, remember, I mean, it was very eighties production values. Oh. Um, yeah, it's Charles Durning as Santa Claus. And, yes. Okay. Yes. And yes, Jerry Herman, the guy who did Hello Dolly, the guy whose music got pulled for 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 Wally, he actually wrote this for CBS and he had written MAME for for Angela Lansbury which you know she did on Broadway in the 60s so it was like hey you know Angela you know do you want to get together and do this again and it's oh god is it it's set in New York City in like the the slums of the east side <laughs> And, you know, she... Yeah, very uh, 80s. Very, very oh, 80s. Very yeah. 80s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I remember that, too. But, again, I... Yeah, the dad worked for a power company or something. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. 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 Bad. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's better than Santa Claus the movie, right? But, uh, you know. Well, yes. Marginally. Marginally. All right. Yeah. So, your kid who grows up watching movies, watching TV shows... What put you on the path to become an entertainment writer? Well, I think we're using that term loosely, but I wanted to be an animator, but realized I had no artistic talent. And mm-hmm. so I am I feel like I'm still on that stage where I'm waiting to realize that I have no actual writing talent either. So <laughs> then, I'll just, then I'll pivot to waste management or something. Oh, but um, that is yeah. not true. <laughs> Anybody who has read the stuff that you've done over the rap or, or you know, all of the other places you've work for online no knows that you you do these great interviews in fact what was your first you know interview with an animator or an animation director do you remember who who you sat down with first i think it was the uh winnie the 2011 winnie the pooh because oh. you'll remember this jim that mm-hmm. that movie is a murderer's row mm. of animation talent mm-hmm. i mean from bruce smith to our our friend Eric Goldberg, to Mark Hen, to Andreas, I think did Tigger, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody. But it was just amazing. And, and so Disney, of course, was like, talk to whoever you want to. 
Not that they were promoting that movie at all. No. But, um, no. yeah, I would love to – well, do, do people know your background of, of being, you know, in the ser- in service and, and doing – can you give us a quick recap of that? To be honest, they've heard that story before. But it's interesting you bring up the Winnie the Pooh junket because that's honestly one of my favorite moments at a junket. I had just the year previous uh, been down to Comic-Con for – the very last panel of that Comic-Con. And it was for, help me out here, it was Super Rocket Monkey Team Hyper Force Go. Was that the name of the show? What? On <laughs> Seriously, this, is a, this was a show that was on the Disney Channel for like a season. And Tom Kenny actually did a voice on it where Tom Kenny evidently does this wonderful James Mason impression. It's the last panel of the last day of Comic-Con, and everybody's exhausted at that point. You're four and a half days in, you're beaten down, and the entire panel is on stage talking about the show, except Tom Kenny. So it's it's Kevin Richardson, who also is doing voices for the show, explaining, well, Tom's not here. You know, Tom, uh, Tom actually goes to Comic-Con every year. Tom is out with his son walking the floor and buying things, and, and from the doorway of the, the, the conference room, we start hearing this guy yell, and it's like, boo, Tom Kenny sucks. I hate that guy. And Kevin, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and Kevin just gets this big smile on his face. It's like, Tom, will you get up here? And it's like, and sure enough, it's Tom Kenny who's up and open and walking the, the floor, and he's literally got his two giant merchandise bags, and his child is also carrying two giant merchandise bags. <laughs> and he comes up, and he, you know, he's just throws him on the table and proceeds to try to take part of the panel, but the panel just goes totally off the rails, you know, at that moment. And you can actually see the Disney publicist, like, I waited till four o'clock on Sunday afternoon, and this is what's happening, the promotion of my show, that, that Tom Kenny has hijacked it. So you know how it is. You know how they'll rotate you from room to room at Disney, so, you know, that, that yeah. there's a group of journalists who'll be talking with somebody, and then, okay, we all move to the next room and talk to the next person. And it's the break in between. And I catch, you know, Tom in the hallway as he's moving to the next room. And I just, you know, Mr. Kenny, I'm a big fan of your work. And I just want to tell you, you are officially behind my favorite Comic-Con moment of all time. And he's like, well, I got to hear this story. And so I had to tell him the whole story. But meanwhile, the publicist is standing at the door like, Tom, Tom, we need, need to maintain the schedule. And Tom just... It starts to tell the story from his point of view. And after five and ten minutes, there's this room full of journalists who are glaring at the two of us in the doorway. And I'm like, I, I need to get to my room now, and I'm really sorry. But he, he is the sweetest guy. And we've had this weird friendship since. And in fact, for the SpongeBob Christmas special, the stop motion thing they did a couple of years ago, he called me from Chicago. He's literally walking the streets of Chicago talking about the special, and his phone dies. And, and you know how it is, you know, just sometimes you have tech issues, but it's like, okay, I got enough to work with. And, you know, it was nice to talk with him. And 45 minutes later, the phone rings at the house and it's Tom back in his hotel room and he's recharged his phone. And it's like, okay, where were we? And it's like, no, we, we were done. It's like, we weren't done. I was having a good time. <laughs> but no, he, he's a sweet, sweet guy. And the other thing of this gig is that you get to talk with so many talented people. That's what fascinates me about the animation world, you just don't run into all that many Yes. They're just genuinely sweet people. It is such a labor-intensive job. But they still have a great attitude and do amazing work, especially if you think about this past 22 months or so, under impossible conditions. Yes. But speaking of, of junkets and that sort of thing, what was the very first thing of size, you know, an industry event that you covered? Well, I think you and I might have been at this event together. Do you remember in Christmas 2010 where Disney did a big kind of showcase in New York where they showed an unfinished version of Tangled and like 15 minutes of Tron Legacy? Were you at that event? No, I was. You got to remember this. (laughs) Disney runs hot and cold on me. You know, that, that, that might have been during that period where it's like I was persona non grata. But that sounds cool. Yeah, well, I mean, do people need to, do people know the the story about 
us having lunch together while I was working at Disney and then me getting <sighs> reprimanded I, hours later well, for, for even being seen oh, with no. the villainous I'm, Jim Hill. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, well now, 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 speaking of which, though, again, you've worked for the company, you've worked outside of the company. Yeah. If you're looking back on it so far, what's the biggest story you've broken to date? I mean, I think I accidentally broke that DuckTales story oh. <laughs> last week, last year, oh, which yes. I, I'm still getting raked over the coals for. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. let, let's be honest, that was one of the industry's worst kept secrets. Yes. I mean, they had been, they had stopped working, I think, from the, from September of the year before oh, was when the yeah. offices shut down. So... What is this answer for you, Jim? Is it is it the Project Genesis? Um, is that what it was called? The the Epcot? Actually, I think the weirdest big story I was involved in was it was actually Harry Potter related. I think I, I've talked about this, where the notion is that once Fantastic Beasts ends, you have the show that's running on Broadway now, The Cursed Child, which of course there will eventually be a movie version, folks. You don't really need a psychic gift to predict that. All right. right. Okay. But I had a friend inside of Warner's. We were talking about this and it's like, yeah, we went from three Fantastic Beasts films to five. But when that's, once that finishes its run, we're going to do a trilogy based on A Cursed Child. And so I write a story to that effect. And suddenly I have J.K. Rowling herself commenting, well, no, I don't know who this Jim Hill person is, but, you know, we're not doing a trilogy based on The Cursed Child. And so I called my friend back at Warner's and go, first of all, very weird to have my name in J.K. Rowling's mouth. Something no one wants these days. No, uh, no one. Or, or, or ever. <laughs> very true. Very true. But, I, you know, and, and the, the friend says, read what she said very carefully. She doesn't deny that we're making a movie on The Cursed Child. Her problem is the, the trilogy. Up until just recently, and in fact, did you hear about this? Where they, they took the two-part version of A Cursed Child and made it into just a single play? No. I mean, I know they do the two parts on Saturday, right? Do they like, really? They, yeah, they, you can sit there for the full four hours or whatever. Um, I think once a week, yeah. Coming out of the pandemic and restarting the show, the notion was, okay, let's just take it and collapse it down to one night of theater because this is what bit them in the butt during the pandemic. You know, the notion of, right. by the way, you have to come back. And it screwed up the touring show, too. I think it was supposed to be in where San, San Francisco was the first, yeah. Up at the Curran, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was just one of these things where we're fighting with her because we want three films. I mean, you know, if we're going to pay Daniel and Emma and Rupert to come back, we're going to want to spread this over three movies. And she's arguing that it's two plays. It should be two movies. And speaking of which, doesn't that debut this weekend as well? The uh, Yeah, tomorrow. It, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, another thing. Did you, did you watch the Tournament of Houses? It was pretty cute. Was the, it? Uh, the game show that Helen Mirren hosted. Yeah, it was, uh, I it was cute. I have to admit, Nancy had it on for about 20 minutes or so. And it was like... You know, look at it as like, Helen Mirren? Helen Mirren? And then it made me remember that there was a time when Helen Hayes appeared in Herbie Rides Again. And it was, <laughs> and it, it, there's actually a great story about that. When Disney went to her almost apologetic about, would you would you be willing to appear in you know, a Herbie sequel for Disney Studios? And, and she's like, what? You don't think I'm willing to do camp? You know, it's like, yeah, sure. You know, if the check clears, I'm in your movie. So, right. uh, but that's the thing. I looked at it and it's like, well, Helen Mirren's got house payments too. Yes. And I'm sure it was over the course. I'm sure they filmed the whole thing over the course of two or three days. So. There, there you go. But yeah, that was my weirdest big story. But I just, I felt bad when you got beaten up for the DuckTales thing. Because again, everybody knew in the industry knew. I mean, everybody had moved on to other shows. And yeah, you were just I mean, the one who said the emperor's wearing no clothes and there were no more ducks coming. And Yeah, I mean, you looked at, I think Kid Cosmic was on Netflix by then. I mean, look at the production there. Half of the people, yeah. if not more, are DuckTales veterans. It's like, hello. But if you want to know what I'm most proud of is probably doing my New York Times story earlier this year. I that, think that was, was genuinely that was pretty cool. cool. I mean, I have to say, yeah. I have no right to feel parental, but I, I felt parental proud to <laughs> seeing you in, in the paper of record. So right. that was so cool. 
Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Okay, so that's the personal side of the fence there, folks. Now, now when we get back from this commercial break, we're going to get into some more esoteric questions. So hang in there. Continuing with our behind-the-scenes Get the Noah show, this is more putting on your professional entertainment writer hat and from what you, you've learned from interviewing folks and that sort of thing. But looking back over the past 40 or 50 years, what do you think of when you look at significant animated films? What would you point to? Well, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but I mean, in the in the two-year period, having The Lion King and Toy Story mm-hmm. come out almost back-to-back was pretty... That was pretty amazing. I mean, it was sort of like, wow, the you know, these animated films really can do whatever the animators' imagination can conjure, they can do. And I thought that was really, really pretty amazing that that happened uh, like that. I mean, there haven't been a ton of, like, kind of, you know, groundbreaking. I mean, Spider-Verse, I think, was probably pretty significant. But mm-hmm. it is also very interesting. There's sort of the double-edged sword of that 90s success, which is that, you know, they made a bunch of movies that were exactly like those movies uh, again and again and again. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, what did you think of that period? And what did you feel like that was a seismic kind of shift? You're not wrong. I mean, if you think about the way The Lion King broke through as a pop culture phenomena and people came out, grown men took their dates to see that movie. Right. uh, And it wasn't just a kiddie audience. And then, what is it? That's July, no, what, May, June of June, 90- I think of, yeah, June of 94 and then, and then November of 95. Yeah, I mean, in, inside of a 15-month period, you know. and, and But, the, you know, again, the irony is that in a lot of ways, uh, Toy Story sort of started the, the slide of hand-drawn. Curiously for me, if I'm picking seismic events, I got a point to, I got a, I want to say a four-year period between, say, when Secret of Nim came out in the summer of 82, and then in the summer of 86, we got The Great Mouse Detective. Because, I mean, you got to remember, you had this period basically from Sword in the Stone through to the Black Cauldron, where... Disney really, I mean, there were other people who made animated features, you know, I mean, Richard Williams made the, the Raggedy Ann and Andy movie and Watership yep. Down. And, and There's the Care Bears movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. It, you'd get these group of people together who'd make a feature, but there was only one company that stayed in the business consistently year in, year out, and that was Disney. But they got lazy. They got slack. I mean, every so often you'd get a yeah. great movie during this period, like The Rescuers. But for the most part, there were lots of cases where they pulled their punches. And then September of 79, Vera Pacheco, we were just talking about her last week. She was part of the the Bluth group. Oh, oh, oh. And speaking of which, we really should talk about that's the other bit of news that broke just this past week. In fact, I think it was Cartoon Brew that talked this up. The, the Bluth book coming out this summer, right? Yeah, it's coming out in July. Mm. And I think it's a it's straight to paper back so it's not hugely expensive no 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 it's so a, I, yeah. I would say go check it out um and it is called somewhere out there my animated life yeah, by yeah. don bluth mm-hmm. and what i was asking you jim was do you think that he's going to pull any punches given that he is kind of back in the disney fray just because of so many of his movies now being owned by disney you once know, again i don't know i mean i would love to get a warts and all take on this guy's career but i i think you're right i you know just one of the things that's kind of encouraging is the fact that at this price point, it looks like it, it's basically self-published, isn't it? Yeah, it's published by a company called Smart Pop, yeah. which I had never heard of. I don't know why how this is not a Scribner's thing. I, like, I, this seems to be like a, I, I don't know. I mean, he's 84. He's had a huge impact, mm-hmm. you know, in several different areas mm-hmm. of, of animation, but I, I know we just cut cut you off. You were going to talk about his birthday exodus from well, yeah, Disney. When, when he walked out the door in 79, it basically took the third of Disney's animation department. And then he goes down the street and sets up Aurora Studios and makes an animated feature. You know, by the way, with money that a former Disney executive who had also been frustrated with what was going on at Walt Disney Productions at the time. It walked away and set up his own production company. But it's the equivalent of people who spent years working at McDonald's, walking out and going across the street and setting up Burger King. Right. 
if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have gotten the Great Mouse Detective. Which, and don't get me wrong, you what you were talking about earlier about Oliver and Company, and of course the Little Mermaid. You know, everyone points to that is the moment where it's like, okay, that's the launch of the second golden age of animation. And I always argue, it's like, no, it's the Great Mouse Detective. Oh, I agree. I love that movie. No, it's a wonderful, fun film. Which, by the way, should have been called Basil of Baker Streets, but we'll, we'll not get into that story this time. Yes. Between those two poles, the Lion King, Toy Story, Nexus, and the uh, Secret of Nim, uh, Great Mouse Detective, yeah, that, between those two points, a lot of animation history happened. And speaking of which, if you're looking back on modern day entertainment history, what do you think had the biggest impact on, on animation that's I mean, a lot of people point to Eisner basically forcing Jeffrey Katzenberg out. Yeah, I remember that being huge and very exciting to see DreamWorks come together as the first kind of independent major studio since UA. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously having Geffen and, and Spielberg there was a huge deal. And then watching, you know, Prince of Egypt and and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um uh, that was yeah, that was pretty pretty epic, and and obviously still resonates today with the rivalry between DreamWorks and Pixar. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, but that was yeah, that was pretty seismic. If you go back to those stories from like when they they announced the company in the fall of '94, and then do you remember how you know, for example, they were going to build the brand new modern day studio at Playa del Vista, I want to say. And yes. And, but it, again, it's one of these things where the locals push back against it and there were wetlands variances. And in a lot of ways, DreamWorks, you know, DreamWorks animation did some great stuff. DreamWorks, the SKG really kind of stumbled out of the gate and never quite got its act together. Yeah, I agree. There's always been an argument that Spielberg, when he agreed to be part of the studio, but he was already committed like four and five years out with other projects, and it was like he wasn't yeah. he wasn't going to be able to fully commit and work for for DreamWorks. Even Geffen wasn't that involved. It seemed like you know I don't know how many DreamWorks records artists you can name on one hand, or you know. It was one of these, I'm blanking the name of the executive, and it wasn't at Disney and it wasn't at DreamWorks, but it was one of their competitors. And we're talking about, you know, just, I, I think we were, we were chatting in 99, 2000 and sort of looking at, you know, what was going on with DreamWorks at that point and it really, you know, hadn't broken through yet. And I asked, well, what do you think, you know, what's going on there? And he said, well, to be honest, vengeance is not a good business plan. You, you set up a company to get back at Disney. You got to have more than that when it comes to a business yeah. plan. So you were just talking about Toy Story. DreamWorks flounders for a number of years until they get Shrek. And they very soon after that basically get out of the hand-drawn business and, and focus right in on CG. And Yeah, well, was, the, was the last one Sinbad? Which I actually like that movie quite a lot. But, but again, you know, that if you, you go back and read the coverage during the period, here's Katzenberg flogging the term tradigital. Oh, yes. <laughs> You know, the notion of it's, it's hand-drawn and it's digital. It's tradigital. You know, it's like, oh, Disney actually follows everybody into the only, you know, only CG field for a while. And, and you know, that that's in fact, we get that film uh, Dream On, A Silly Dreamer, about the shutdown basically of hand-drawn at Disney. And uh, But then Disney buys Pixar in 2006 and Lasseter commits to reviving uh, hand-drawn, and, and you and I were, were just talking about, you got Princess and the Frog, and then we got Winnie the Pooh, and you and I were at that junket, and after that, they were yeah. pretty much out of the hand-drawn business, and do you agree with the thinking at Disney these days? You know, Look, we tried, and audiences just weren't interested in hand-drawn. Well, I think it's very funny that anytime there's a short, there's an experiment, you know, there's the short circuit program, mm-hmm. there's a theatrical short, like, Far From the Tree, Mm-hmm. Every time they do one of these things, these animators are trying to inject traditional animation back into the pipeline. I mean, it is absolutely hilarious how desperate 
all of these people working at Disney are to do something like that. And I think we've seen sort of, you know, whether it's, you know, Maui's mm-hmm. tattoos in Moana, there have been little flourishes, but a true like hybrid production along the lines, even of something like Spider-Verse mm-hmm. or Mitchell's versus the machines or bad guys, you know, something that at least feels 2d, I think is just in dire need. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things that kind of hurt that whole approach was the shutdown of Walt Disney Feature Animation Studio of Florida. Yeah, you're not wrong. You know, I mean, that was such an inspiring place. And, and you and I have talked about this a lot before, but just walking through there, and you obviously, you've been inside the bubble, the fish tank. You've seen what yeah. those $7,000 custom mm. animation desks looked like. Mm. And, you know, I was even watching the the Full House episode where they go to oh, yeah. Disney World, yeah. and then I, 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 and of course for years I had no idea who the animator was, and then I, oh my god, that's Mark Hen. There we go, turning Dave Coulier into yep. a lost boy or whatever that, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. Pretty amazing. It so was. I think that was such a, it was such a wonderful promotion of hand drawn animation and what that process was like and. There were so many behind-the-scenes tours you could go on of that facility. And even the Disney Institute, I feel like, was a great kind yeah. of bullhorn for that stuff. And I'm I'm still so upset. But as we talked about on the last show, there is this weird training program that's, that you can do. That's, I'm so right? glad you brought that up. By the way, I, I also want to point out another video you want to chase down on YouTube. Evidently, Eric went down to Walt Disney World for the opening of Drawn to Life, the new Cirque du Soleil show, which, of course, he, he did a lot right. of the animation for. But they, there's this wonderful piece in it where it's Eric in the Magic Kingdom and they're showing him enchantment for the first time, which he did a lot of the animation on. There's a wonderful bit in the middle of it that's played to Be Our Guest where it's Mary Blair versions of the Beauty and the Beast characters coupled with the original Mary Blair takes on the Alice in Wonderland characters, but they're animated. They're moving. It's moving real Mary Blair art before it, you know, then gets de-stylized and that sort of thing. And it, it's Eric that did this. Eric figured out how to take that and make it animate. And it's just wonderful to watch him watching his work writ large on the side of Cinderella Castle. So, you know, I'm thrilled that, that he's going to be the, the one potentially teaching this next generation of animators, which I'm hoping to yeah. God gets back in the hand-drawn business. Because that's the other thing. If you look at everything else that's going on in animation on Netflix or that sort of thing, hand-drawn is alive and well. Yeah, I don't know if it's if it's totally hand-drawn. If there there is some kind of computer element, obviously. Oh no, 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 but, no. I know you yeah. use it. Everything that that Mercury Filmworks puts out, I feel like is like the height of what this um, kind of computerized two D look is. Whether it's Kid Cosmic or Hilda or the Mickey Mouse shorts, I mean, they are just they're unstoppable. They're so good, and I'm totally in awe of them. And I just cannot believe that Disney can't get its act together and do something similar, but hopefully. Yeah. Okay. Now we come to the questions where we are going to make no friends at this moment. If you could erase from entertainment history, one animated sequel or follow-up film, what would it be? Can you answer this question first? Let me, let me deliberate on this for a moment. If I had to pick and, and from a studio corner office position, I'm the exact wrong take on this idea. If you think about the amount of money that, for example, Illuminations has made off of Minions movies or the Despicable Me sequels, oh God. it was a, a brilliant decision to do a sequel to the film. Likewise, if you pivot to Blue Sky and you look at Ice Age and you think about how many sequels we got to that, or for that matter, the Adventures of Buck Wild that's about to debut in just a week or so on Disney+. Plus. Of course, it made sense to sequelize Ice Age. But I would argue in both the case of Despicable Me and Ice Age, you took a great film and diminished it by sequels that were lesser, that didn't really add to the story, that took away from the power of the original films. I mean, I still will watch Despicable Despicable Me is on, and they get to that scene where Gru is reading the scene with the orphan kittens, 
Or for that matter, the original Ice Age that has such a powerful ending. Though at the same time, the fact that they, they couldn't let Diego stay dead, which Dennis Leary to this day is like, you know, he was dead. I walked away from the movie and then they called me back. He's not dead. You got to come in and, and record, you know, new lines. And he's like, I got, I got several houses now because they changed their mind about Diego being dead. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the story decision. But yeah, I mean, I would argue that sometimes a sequel will make the film that started it all, it takes away from it. It diminishes it. So... Yeah. I mean, I'll say Sing 2, even. Really? Not great. Uh, yeah. Does not does not do any favors. I mean, I think the, the good sequels are few and far between. I'm still trying to figure out Cars 2 uh, at yeah, this point. So, well, yeah. You know, that, that's, the stories I've always heard is that between John Lasseter breaking his arm and his dad passing away that year, that any other time... Somebody at the studio would have made a decision like, let's let's pause this or let's put this on hold. But they had made so much damn money off of the sale of toys for the original cars. It's like, you know, I don't care what the sequel is about. It's We're getting a sequel. Yeah. Conversely, though, if you could greenlit one never produced or, or, or never completed animated feature, what would it be? Oh, wow. Well, I think you and I would both probably say that that Freddy Cat and American Dog are uh, two that they, we wish see, we could have seen. I knew I could count on you. I knew. <laughs> yes, right? those two. Those two. Yeah. I only got to see little chunks of American Dog, but Chris Sanders was really going down an interesting road. Yes. It was going to be very much in the storytelling style of Lilo and Stitch with lots of left-handed writing. The original Lilo and Stitch has one of my favorite moments in all of animation history. The character that David Ogden Styers uh, voiced. The uh, oh yeah, J- uh, J- is that Jumba? Jumba. Quickly, Ple- yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and it just—it's the moment where he's clapped. You know, finally throughout the entire film, he's been pursuing Experiment Six Two Six, and he claps him in irons. He's going to take him back, and it's like. Stitch tries to speak to him, and it's like, what? You want me to release you? And, and Stitch just goes, eep! And Jumba reaches over and just undoes the cuffs, and, and Plinkley is like, you know, what, what are you doing? And it's like, very convincing argument. You know, just sort of like, I, I love that moment. I just, you know, just that, yeah. that's good. American writing. Dog was going to be. No. Yeah, it was going to be great. And, and, you know, the story that I've been told recently about why it was killed was that John Lasseter didn't like the idea of humans talking to animals and vice versa. That animals should talk to animals and humans should talk to humans. And he could not wrap his head around this idea of animals talking to humans, which is prob- which probably explains mm-hmm. the version of Good Dinosaur we got, which, of course, that's another one that I would have loved to have seen was the Bob Peterson yeah. Good Dinosaur. So a lot of weird ego stuff. We know that Lasseter hated... Mm-hmm. Lilo and Stitch, and there's a ton of other. I mean, I we would have loved to have seen the Shadow King completed, oh, yeah. uh, the the first Pixar stop motion movie, mm. and you know things like Brad Bird's Ray Gun. Oh. You know, there's there's just so many tantalizing projects no, over no, the no. years. No, absolutely, but, absolutely. But those two loom large. And Freddy Cat, for those that don't know, was a Ron and John. Uh, animated Hitchcock movie starring a cat. Yeah. Um, yes. The thing that especially intrigued me about that was the notion of Samuel L. Jackson as the voice of a parakeet. I am Philip J. Fry at that moment. <laughs> Take my money! <laughs> right. All right. So anyway, to, to bring this thing to a close, and, and obviously, again, I, I'm, I'm not going to hold you to, to anything you say today, because face it, if I talked to you two years ago at this time, I'm going to think, okay, so what's, what's 2020 going to be like? You know, at the box of, neither of us could have seen what happened as the pandemic came over the hill. And certainly, you know, that the, the way that impacted the reputation of, of Onward, which, by the way, I watched again the other night, and, and that film really is growing on me. It's so good. It is. It's it really, is. really good. But yeah. it just, I just worry that it's going to take that much longer for people to realize that because so few people got to see it in theaters and, you know, know. you know, it's just, it's not fair, but uh, face it, given what's going on with streaming right now and the impact that the pandemic has had it the, on the whole of the exhibitors and all that, where do you see uh, the entertainment industry 
five to ten years from now. Well, I hope a lot of these projects actually finally come to fruition. I mean, if you had asked me if I could greenlit a never-produced film mm-hmm. two years ago, I would have said Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And now we're getting it this year, you know? So I feel like, I hope that streaming means that a lot of these sort of more esoteric passion projects like Wendell and Wild mm-hmm. that is coming soon from Henry Selleck, you know, will find a home. Although I still think there is a ceiling on that. Obviously, like, Phil Tippett's movie has not been picked up yet. Um, there there are certain, I guess, parameters that they still need to fit into. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping that the type of movie and the like look of the movies are, are going to be a little bit more varied just because I feel like we are getting into a little bit of stagnation just in terms of like the visuals of some of these things. Mm-hmm. And even seeing like Luca and what Turning Red looks like, like they're, they just look so different from Pixar, other Pixar movies. And I hope to see that pushed uh, a little bit more. I mean, we can't wait to see what Strange World looks like. Oh no! Obviously Lightyear looks insane. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we are on the cusp of another kind of great era of animation. You know, I just did my, like, top animation of 2021 list, and there was just so much great stuff, and so much stuff I didn't even get to see. So I'm I'm, I'm very optimistic, but I don't know how you feel. To circle back to what we kind of started the, the show talking about, about Maya and the Three, when you look at nine episodes, that was, what, you know, four and a half hours, damn near, of, of yeah, animation? Yeah, and studio quality, you know, theatrical quality animation, not, you know, cheapy Saturday morning stuff. No, 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 absolutely. And it told a big story and took large risks. And and if you think about, you know, the, the, how many Kleenexes you went through in the last 10 or 15 minutes of that thing, that excites me. Let that lead. You don't have to worry about, you know, I need to tell a story in 90 minutes that will have some sort of market, you know, in, you know, a theatrical world, you know, that somebody will be willing to pay for and then buy their $10 tub of popcorn and their $5 soda. The fact that you can do amazing animation of over four hours of, of great work and tell a complicated story. That doesn't necessarily end happily. Yeah. That excites me. And I, I, I'm yeah. hoping that that's the example that leads. So we're sp- we're spared uh, Madagascar 3 to the circus or whatever. <laughs> uh, that's what... I know you love that sequence in Madagascar 3. See, that's the thing. I, you know, th- there are sometimes, you know, one scene in one uh, movie will just like, okay, that's your get-out-of-jail-free card. And, you know, the fireworks scene in that alone is just sort of like, I don't, how the hell did you do that? So Right. All right. Anyway, folks, so we don't always just focus on animation, especially Drew. You ended the year with two ridiculously strong recap episodes that would <laughs> great sampler of, you know, what Light the Fuse does so well. But was this finally the, the, the last bit of Ghost Protocol? And if so, where are you headed from from here? No, Jim, of course not. We have many more <laughs> Ghost Protocol episodes. Oh, okay. Coming down the pike, okay. of course. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a Ghost Protocol podcast at this point, but I'm <laughs> I'm fine with that. Um, no, it's... But yeah, we have we have cool. more more stuff to do and then, you know, we we are hopefully going through some big changes this year and I I will keep everybody abreast of that on my social media, Jim, of course, which, you know, I encourage everybody to follow me keep, on there. And speaking of which, where can they find you? Uh, this is uh, Drew Tailored, like a tailored shirt, on Twitter and Instagram. And let's see, uh, Nancy would also like me to remind you, also social media-wise, that you can find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. That's going to do it for this week, and we'll be back with real animation news next week. Uh, but for now, thanks for listening. <laughs>